Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the argument from scale and the symmetry of evidence. While I'm not the biggest fan of the argument from scale, I think there's a bit of tennis without the net reasoning here on the part of theists. In some of the theistic dismissals of the argument from scale, you get the sense that human orientation in time and space could not even in principle weigh against theism. I think this is mistaken. So while I don't think the argument from scale is ultimately a strong argument for atheism that significantly moves the needle, I disagree with the dismissive sentiment often expressed by theists who write off the argument completely. In case you're unfamiliar with the argument, here's the gist of it. To quote William Lane Craig, David Manley was making the point that on the cozy, pre-Copernican cosmology, what C.S. Lewis called the discarded image of the cosmos, Theism seemed vastly more probable than atheism. Like a Fabergé egg, the little universe centered on the Earth, with the spheres of the planets and fixed stars revolving around it, cried out for an explanation in terms of a cosmic designer. End quote. And here's Tim Mulgan. Quote, the argument from scale objects that the vast universe discovered by science, where human beings play such a marginal role, is out of kilter with what we would expect from a god who is benevolent to humans. Humans are too puny to be the centerpiece of so vast a cosmic canvas. Human beings seem cosmically unimportant, though certainly from God's perspective we're more important than stars, rocks, unimaginably vast stretches of empty space and time, and other things that don't seem to possess any value in and of themselves. The latter group seems to have been afforded the lion's share of the cosmos. Human beings, presumably the jewel of God's creation, don't seem to be the main event. We didn't exist for most of time. Human life on Earth didn't exist for about 99.9999% of our universe's known history, and we certainly don't occupy any significant portion of space. The question is not, can theists offer a possible explanation of the apparent cosmic insignificance of human life? The question is, does this evidence favor naturalism or theism? Is the sheer vastness of time and space, and the lack of human centrality therein, more probable on naturalism or on theism? It turns out that William Lane Craig agrees that this evidence favors naturalism, though he's very quick to soften the blow and say that it's not strong evidence favoring naturalism. In fact, William Lane Craig and I are in total agreement on this point. Well, not total agreement. I think it's stronger than he thinks, though we both think the argument works, and for the same reason. While neither of us think that scale is a powerful argument, we still disagree on just how much it should move the needle. Thank you.
The church used to believe that Earth was the center of the solar system. In 1633, the Roman Catholic Inquisition tried and condemned Galileo for his support of heliocentrism, the model in which the Earth and planets revolve around the Sun instead of the other way around, with Earth, and thereby humans, at the center of the solar system. The Catholic authorities found him, quote, vehemently suspect of heresy, and sentenced him to indefinite imprisonment. Though many interpretations of these events have been offered, many of them by less than disinterested parties, Galileo was in fact kept under house arrest until his death in 1642 as a result of his trial. Father George Coyne, who heads up a Catholic observatory, was quoted in New Scientist as saying that the affair was, quote, tragic, beyond the control of any one party. It was the height of the church's battle with Protestantism, and here was a scientist saying that he interpreted scripture better than they did. End quote. Of course, the Vatican eventually admitted that Galileo was not incorrect. In 1992, a New York Times headline from that year reads, After 350 years, Vatican says Galileo was right. Better late than never, I guess? So Christians not only used to believe that the Earth was the center of it all, and that the universe was far smaller than it turned out to be, but they had to be dragged into admitting otherwise. That alone is a pretty good reason for thinking that Christianity makes for a more comfortable fit with that sort of cosmology. That's what they did in fact think, and it was no easy task getting Christian authorities to concede that point. I thought Craig put it well. On the cozy pre-Copernican cosmology, theism seemed vastly more probable than atheism. Quote, Like a Fabergé egg, the little universe centered on the earth, with the spheres of the planets and fixed stars revolving around it, cried out for an explanation in terms of a cosmic designer. End quote. Think about what Father Coyne said about the Galileo affair. It was the height of the church's battle with Protestantism. Quote, and here was a scientist saying he interpreted scripture better than they did. What led the Christian authorities to quote-unquote misread the text in this way? Why does the text seem to indicate a cosmology more in line with what the Catholic authorities of Galileo's era believed than what Galileo himself believed? So, why am I bringing this up? For one, because it's funny that the Catholic Church didn't admit that Galileo was right until 1992, Secondly, because some theists resist the idea of scale counting as evidence one way or the other. They think it's completely neutral. However, I think Christian history gives us pretty good reason to think that the question of human orientation in space and time is not neutral. I think Christian history at least suggests that. Relatedly, there's a funny quote from Martin Luther about Copernicus, who he referred to, according to one student who was present, as, quote, that fool who would upset the whole art of astronomy before adding, I believe the Holy Scriptures, for Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, and not the earth. End quote. Again, the reason I'm bringing this up is not because it's necessary to the argument from scale. It isn't. Or even just because it's funny to me. It is. The point is that Christian history is highly suggestive that the issue of the place of humans in the cosmos is not neutral, as some have claimed. Imagine witnessing the entirety of this progression of Christian authorities fighting tooth and nail to deny modern cosmology, and then after it's undeniable, saying, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. It would seem like a very obvious case of sour grapes. Okay.
but even if you disagree with me there, and don't think that any of this indicates that the real scale of the universe is perhaps not optimal from a Christian point of view, there's another way of making the same point. It starts with a reasonable concession. Wouldn't it be evidence for theism if we were the center of creation? If humans were the main event? If everything else was the same, but the cosmos somehow revolved around the earth? Wouldn't that be a bit more expected on theism? In a universe indifferent to human life, it would be more surprising, compared to theism, to find ourselves occupying a privileged position, temporally or spatially, in relation to other parts of the universe. If the scale of the universe was more proportional to human beings, the universe would have more of a feel of being created for us. Whereas if the universe wasn't created for us, we wouldn't expect the universe to be on a scale that made any sense at all from the perspective of human life. And I should add that human life is meant to convey something like conscious creatures who are intelligent, rational, moral agents. That's what's really important here, not that we're, you know, bipedal primates or something. But I'll just use human as a shorthand for all that. So I don't want the argument from scale to be misunderstood. Getting too hung up on Galileo, or a literal center, just misses the point entirely. The question is one of human-centric orientation. We've got a human-oriented god, in other words, a human-oriented designer of the cosmos, but not a human-oriented universe. And if we did, that would be evidence for theism. To quote philosopher Emily Thomas, God is human-oriented. Human beings are like God, and he values us highly. Although we're focusing on Christianity, these claims can be found in other monotheistic religions too. If God is human-oriented, wouldn't you expect him to create a universe in which humans feature prominently? You'd expect humans to occupy most of the universe, existing across time. And yet, that isn't the kind of universe we live in. Humans are very small. In space, as Douglas Adams once put it, is big. Really, really big. End quote. So, humans do not occupy most time, nor do they exist across space. Even worse, both are incomprehensible to us. We exist at scales of both time and space such that the very slow, very fast, very small, and very large are all beyond our intuitive understanding. The only way for us to get any grip whatsoever on these aspects of nature is through the highly abstract language of physical science. As Bertrand Russell once put it, Physics is mathematical not because we know so much about the physical world, but because we know so little. The incomprehensibility of the temporal and spatial scale of the universe aside, the scale of the universe in relation to humans remains more surprising on theism than it is on naturalism. That's why it's evidence against theism. As Philip Goff once mentioned, offhandedly, the point of the argument is that the most valuable bit of the universe doesn't seem to be the main event. Again, no surprise on cosmic indifference. So let me make it clear that theists can explain the vast scale of the universe and the decidedly non-privileged position of humans in it. That much is obvious. They can explain the data. And the plausibility of their explanations lead me to rate this argument as a not very powerful one. But that doesn't change the fact that the vast scale of our universe and our non-privileged position in it is more surprising on theism and less surprising on competing views with a more naturalistic outlook. 
Maybe this doesn't constitute strong evidence against theism, but to say that it constitutes no evidence? This kind of reasoning is unprincipled. And I say that because there are principled reasons to hold that an observation is evidence for a given hypothesis only if the negation of that observation would be evidence against that hypothesis. Observation O is evidence for hypothesis H over not H, if and only if not O is evidence for not H. To quote philosopher Michael Humer, In the Bayesian view, a hypothesis is supported when the probability of hypothesis H, given evidence E, is greater than the initial probability of H. It is a trivial theorem that E would be evidence for H if and only if the falsity of E would be evidence against H. That means that if nothing counts as evidence against H, then nothing counts as evidence for H either. But if there's no evidence for H, then one typically shouldn't believe it. End quote. So let me reiterate the crucial part of that as it relates to our discussion. Scale would be evidence for atheism if and only if its falsity would be evidence against atheism, which, assuming you're going along with me, we already agreed to. If humans did appear to be the main event, that would be less expected on a hypothesis of indifference. A human-oriented creator of the universe would probably create a human-oriented universe, or at least a human-oriented universe would be far more expected on that hypothesis and more surprising on a hypothesis of indifference. So, by that basic probability theorem Humer mentioned, the actual scale of our universe is evidence against theism. This is about the symmetry of evidence. The possibility of evidence for entails the possibility of evidence against. It's completely incoherent to say, if we lived in a human-oriented cosmos, that would of course be evidence for a human-oriented designer of the cosmos. But if we don't live in a human-oriented cosmos, that somehow doesn't count as evidence against the existence of such a designer. Now, this point is easy to misunderstand. To be clear, when I say symmetry of evidence, I don't mean to say that the strength of the evidence is symmetrical. It's not true that if E is evidence for H, not E must be evidence for not H to exactly the same degree. That's not the case. What is meant by symmetry is that the possibility of evidence for entails the possibility of evidence against. This might seem a bit abstract, so let's look at a few examples of this in practice. Divine appearance would obviously be evidence for God, so divine hiddenness is evidence against God. Successful prayer experiments would be evidence for God, and unsuccessful prayer experiments are evidence against but if divine hiddenness isn't evidence against God, then that means that divine appearance wouldn't be evidence for God, which is crazy. If unsuccessful prayer experiments aren't evidence against God, then successful prayer experiments wouldn't be evidence for God. I have to bring this up because of the tennis without the net argumentation that seems prevalent in online philosophy of religion. If evidence E, then that supports theism significantly. But if not evidence E, then it doesn't matter and isn't evidence against theism. You can't have it both ways, and this can be demonstrated via the odds form of Bayes' theorem, which does not lend itself to being communicated solely through audio, so if you want to see it yourself, you can watch the YouTube video version of this podcast, 
or you can check the show notes for the details. I'll spare you the pain of listening to five minutes of things like 1 minus the probability of not O on H is greater than 1 minus the probability of not O on not H. If you want to argue that the actual human orientation in time and space we observe doesn't weigh against theism even a little bit, then you have to make an absurd concession. You'd have to say that it would not be evidence for theism in the slightest, even if the scale of time and space stood in relation to human beings in a way that indicated our centrality and importance. That would somehow not be evidence against indifference. As I said, this is obviously absurd. A human-oriented universe would be evidence for a human-oriented creator of the universe. If human beings held a privileged position in the cosmos, temporally or spatially, that would clearly be evidence for theism. But once we've conceded as much, we're led unavoidably to a corollary. If the facts point in the exact opposite direction, we have evidence for the opposite conclusion. address a couple potential areas of confusion. As I mentioned earlier, when I say human, it's really a shorthand for our essential features. We're conscious creatures, rational beings, and moral agents. We're intrinsically valuable, and according to theists, made in the image of God, in some sense. There could have been non-human creatures that satisfy those same criteria, and there very well could be such creatures who exist even now, far away. The subject matter of the argument from scale is conscious, rational, moral creatures and their position in the cosmos. Throughout, I've expressed this in various interrelated ways, but I can see a critic or a supporter of the argument from scale questioning my presentation, since I'm often straying from a strict appeal to the unimaginable vastness of space. But I think it makes sense to rephrase the argument in different ways that get us to feel the same intuition and sentiment behind the argument, which I believe is ultimately based on the lack of centrality and significance of human life in the cosmos. So I've drawn attention to various aspects of the universe that don't seem to indicate the cosmic importance of human beings. There's the incomprehensible vastness of space, the similarly incomprehensible vastness of time, the fact that we don't occupy what could be considered a central or privileged position in this vast ocean of space-time, you know, in the way that William Lane Craig mentioned at the outset, not to mention the fact that nothing about the universe indicates that we are the main event, despite the fact that we're the most valuable part of the universe. So these are all different strands of the same rope. You could form a stricter version of the argument that relies on spatial scale alone, but I think it wouldn't do justice to the argument. Even though one can draw distinctions between what I just listed, they seem to me to be intimately interconnected, like they're different expressions of the same surprise concerning what we've learned about the insignificant place of human beings in the cosmos. So why shouldn't we also point out that humans don't exist across time, that we don't occupy a privileged temporal location that would indicate our significance? It seems to qualify as an argument from scale, as long as we're talking about the vastness of the cosmos and the fact that conscious, rational, moral creatures don't seem to occupy a position of significance 
or centrality. The cosmic calendar compresses the local history of the universe into a single year. If the universe began on January 1st, it was not until May that the Milky Way formed. Everything humans have ever done occurred in that bright speck at the lower right of the cosmic calendar. The Big Bang is at upper left in the first second of January 1st. 15 billion years later is our present time, the last second of December 31st. At this scale, the cosmic calendar is the size of a football field, but all of human history would occupy an area the size of my hand. We're just beginning to trace the long and tortuous path which began with the primeval fireball and led to the condensation of matter, gas, dust, stars, galaxies, and at least in our little nook of the universe, planets and life, intelligence, and inquisitive men and women. We've emerged so recently that the familiar events of our recorded history occupy only the last seconds of the last minute of December 31st. We humans appear on the cosmic calendar so recently that our recorded history occupies only the last few seconds of the last minute of December 31st. In the vast ocean of time which this calendar represents, all our memories are confined to this small square. Every person we've ever heard of lived somewhere in there. All those kings and battles, migrations and inventions, wars and loves, everything in the history books happens here in the last 10 seconds of the cosmic calendar. I think it might be necessary to reinforce the main contention of this episode. That if one grants that it would be evidence for theism, if humans occupied a privileged position in space and time, one which indicated our centrality and cosmic importance, then it must be evidence against theism if we don't observe that. It would be unprincipled to say otherwise. For some reason, this is a controversial notion. By controversial, I don't mean that it appears to be remotely controversial among philosophers who are familiar with the odds form of Bayes' theorem. I do, however, get pushed back every time I bring it up in discussion online. The reasoning behind the symmetry, provided in a thorough blog post linked in the show notes, is part of the odds form of Bayes' theorem. On likelihoodism, observation O is evidence for hypothesis H over not H if and only if the probability of O on H is greater than the probability of O on not H. O is evidence for H over not H, if and only if, not O is evidence for not H. This means that you can have evidence for a hypothesis if and only if you can have evidence against a hypothesis. Like I said, I'm going to spare you the pain of reading out this sort of thing in greater detail, but if you'd like to see the reasoning, it's there in the show notes. Not to mention, on the screen of the YouTube video version of this podcast, if you're not already subscribed to my YouTube channel, that would be wonderful. I'm starting to be more active over there. Never really been interested in it before, but it's kind of fun. Anyway, 
The moral of the story is that an observation is evidence for a hypothesis if and only if the negation of that observation is evidence for the negation of that hypothesis. Okay, so now let's return to Craig. Quote, David Manley was making the point that on the cozy, pre-Copernican cosmology, what C.S. Lewis called the discarded image of the cosmos, theism seemed vastly more probable than atheism. But if you agree that theism is more likely than atheism on such a view, then, Manley argued, you must also agree that a vast cosmos, such as we observe, counts as evidence against God's existence. I found Manley's point disquieting, but a personal conversation with Nevin Cluminga, a former student of Tim McGrew at Western Michigan and a whiz at probability theory, proved to be illuminating. Manley was right, Nevin explained, that if you agree that the existence of a small universe is more probable on theism than on atheism, then you must agree that just as the smallness of the universe supports theism, so also the vastness of the universe supports atheism. But, and here's the rub, not to the same degree. Taken in isolation, the vastness of the cosmos does count against theism to some degree, but not decisively. End quote. Craig's comment at the end there, not to the same degree, was made in anticipation of a common misunderstanding of the symmetry of evidence. As we mentioned earlier, it's not that the strength of the evidence must be symmetrical in every case. What is meant by symmetry is that the possibility of evidence for entails the possibility of evidence against. If a certain observation, like a small universe, supports theism, then the opposite observation, a vast universe, supports atheism. Even though the small universe would be better news for theists than the vast universe is for atheists. Because of how Bayes' factors work, if E is evidence for H, this entails that not E is evidence for not H. But here's where some people get tripped up. That something is powerful evidence for a hypothesis does not entail that the negation of that evidence is powerful evidence against that hypothesis. By symmetry of evidence, I don't mean that the evidence and the negation of the evidence are of equal and opposite strength. I mean that something being evidence for a hypothesis entails that the negation of that evidence would count against that hypothesis. In conversation on social media, many have tried to offer counterexamples, cases where following this principle would lead to a counterintuitive result, cases where some evidence lends support to a hypothesis in a way that just seems off. I've noticed that many of these alleged counterexamples make the same two mistakes. One, not understanding that the power of the evidence can be asymmetrical, or two, overestimating how big of a deal it is to lend some justification to a hypothesis. So, before an alleged counterexample is presented, I would check to see if you're mistakenly thinking that the strength of the evidence must be equivalent in both directions. It needs to be mentioned also that providing some evidence, or some degree of justification for a proposition, is a really low bar. Providing some justification is just not a huge deal. Evidential support happens all over the place. So the fact that certain allegedly strange cases of evidential support may result from accepting the symmetry of evidence is not very convincing. Again, providing some degree of justification is a really low bar to clear. 
it's not the end of the world if you have to grant that for a hypothesis that you don't agree with or that seems untrue. So we've gotten pretty far afield from the argument from scale, but this point about evidential symmetry is a crucial part of my case. And to be clear, one could still make the argument from scale without it. But for me, this is what made it make sense. It seems very easy to make the case that the way Christians of previous centuries viewed the cosmos and the place of humans in the universe made for a much better fit with Christianity than what the reality of the situation turned out to be. It would obviously be evidence for theism if the centrality and importance of human life was reflected by the scale of the universe. Once we grant that, which seems nearly undeniable, all we have to do is accept this basic concept of the symmetry of evidence. Then you've got the argument from scale. That's all I have for you today. I have new patrons to thank. Tim Danaher, Suzanne Adams, Salaton, John Comancho, and Mark A. Thank you, Tim, Suzanne, Salaton, John, and Mark. And of course, thank you to my Hall of Fame patrons, Phil Stillwell, Grim Frenzy, Dehydrated Myself Until Aaron Made Me Moist, Richard Crossan, Rory B. Murkowski, and Henry W. Bartholomew. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to create a completely indifferent-looking universe just to throw people off the scent, you can follow me on social media, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The transition music is a Chicanito. Both were used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.